Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Really, the next couple of Sundays, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. And as I was thinking about that chapter and the verses that we're going to look at, I thought of a dynamic related to my dog. Now, that may be shocking to some of you, and for others of you, you think that's probably par for the course. But my my dog actually has helped me understand something of great importance in Matthew chapter 11. You see, I love my dog. I do. He's a part of the family. I have good things in my heart for my dog. I I want him to enjoy all of the blessings of being a Robinson. That's my heart. That's my desire for him. And so because of that, I move towards him at times and want to redirect his behavior. Because some of the things that he does, some of the things he chews, some of the things he chooses to chew are things that are not acceptable for a Robinson. And so out of love, I move towards him because I want good things for him. I want him to be able to stay in the house more as the temperature drops and gets colder outside. I want him to be able to enjoy some time sitting by my side while I'm scratching his back so he doesn't have to roll on his own back to scratch that hard-to-reach spot. I mean, I have some good things in store for my dog. But as I move towards my dog with those good things in my heart, you know what my dog often does? He turns and he runs. Now, when I say that, some of you are going, dumb dog. And in some sense, that's probably an accurate assessment. But when we think about that, why does my dog do that? Why does my dog turn and run when I approach him? Well, it's because I don't think he's convinced that I am moving towards him in love and compassion. I think he thinks I want to take control of his life and make it worse somehow. And so he turns and he runs away from me. Now, it'd be easy for us to just hear a story like that and think about it just in terms of pet ownership. But I think it's important for us to draw a connection to our lives and specifically to Matthew chapter 11 in something that we see there. See, in Matthew 11, Jesus makes this statement. He says, come to me. And he says, take my yoke upon you. But when we hear Jesus say to us, come to me, and when we hear Jesus say to us, walk with me, how do we often respond? We turn and we run, or we turn and we hide. Now, why do we do that? We do that often, friends, because we don't know Jesus like we ought. We think that he really doesn't have love in his heart as he moves towards us. We think he really doesn't have our best interest in mind as he moves towards us. We think that we've got to change to impress him in some way before we might be able to interact with him. And so when he begins to move towards us, sometimes not realizing who he is, we turn and we run away. That's why after Jesus makes these statements, to come to me and to take his yoke upon us, what what does he say next? He tells them who he is. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Friends, if we want to turn towards Christ and not run away from him, we need to remember who he is. We need to know his very heart. 
And when we do, it changes the way that we respond. We're going to see over the next couple of weeks in a series called The King's Heart, we're going to see the king's heart, the king of kings' heart as he defines it. He says that he is gentle and lowly. What does that mean? And what do we do with it? We're going to see that as we look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. This morning, I want to create the context for this and and look at it by looking at verses 28 to 30, and then we'll back up and make a couple of observations. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Jesus is talking here, and this is what he says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, in these few verses, we're going to see a couple of things today. The first thing we need to see is this. We need to see these statements that Jesus makes when he says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. What does Jesus mean when he invites us to come and to take? Well, in these verses, we we see Jesus begin and, and say to the masses, he says, come to me. And who does he invite to come to him? He invites all to come to him, all to come to him. But not just all in general, but, but all who are experiencing some specific circumstances, who are involved in a particular condition. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. He doesn't say, come to me all who have figured it out. He doesn't say, come to me all who have never sinned. He doesn't say, come to me all who would be voted most likely to spiritually succeed by your senior high school class. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. Now, to those who are labored and heavy laden, he doesn't say, come to a program. He doesn't say, come to a class. He doesn't say, come to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Now, people who live in today's day and age, we need rest Right? How many of you would like just at least a little bit of rest today? <laughs> okay, like half of you are honest. The other half just didn't want to raise your hand. You're so weary and heavy laden, you couldn't even get your arm up to say how you were doing this morning. We are, are, are heavy laden. We are in need of rest. But I think specifically, we need to remember that Jesus here was referring to those who are weary and heavy laden as it relates to their sin and their need for salvation. He says, come to me, all of you who feel under the pile of your sin. Come to me, all of you who are weighed down by your past failures and your current mistakes. He says, come to me, all of you who who feel like you are being crushed under your own sin. And Jesus said, I will give you rest. Not only that, but he says, I want you to come to me and not to a program. He doesn't say, you've got to figure this out on your own. He says, 
if you are experiencing the rat race of religiosity and you're trying to please God through your own efforts, Jesus says, there is a way to salvation and it's not found through you, it's found through me. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. This is the call that Jesus gives. It's an invitation to our salvation. But he doesn't just say, come and get salvation. He continues and says, take something. What does he say take? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, what is this this yoke that Jesus is talking about? See, we live in a world that doesn't have many yokes unless you have some farm fresh eggs at your house, right? Maybe those are the yoke that we're most familiar with. But when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's, he's talking about a different kind of yoke, the kind of yoke that would tether two animals together. This may be a foreign concept to us, but it wasn't foreign to the first century. People of the first century would have been very familiar with this illustration as Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Because what you would do in farming is you would take one ox and you would tether it to another ox. You would take an experienced ox and you would tether it to an inexperienced ox. And the experienced ox would set the direction and the pace and do the majority of the work so that the work of the field might be accomplished. Because of this picture, it was something that became a symbol of discipleship. Being yoked together with someone was a picture of discipleship. To to tether yourself to someone and to walk with them. And if they were the lead ox, to tether yourself with them, to walk with them and allow them to set the direction and the pace of your life. What what Jesus was saying was he says, I want you to come to me and I will give you rest, not just in salvation, but I want you to come to me and walk with me that you might have rest in your daily experience as you are discipled by me. And Jesus said that as you do that, you will find that my yoke is easy. Now, what what does Jesus mean when he says his yoke is easy? He's saying that the Christian life is, is easy? Well, not necessarily the way that we think of it. I mean, remember, we just prayed for believers around the world who are experiencing persecution and suffering. That doesn't sound easy to us. It doesn't sound like a vacation. But when Jesus said that his yoke is easy, what he was saying was that the yoke is well-fitting for us. It's designed for us. You see, if I were to try to do work wearing size 16 shoes, I would tear my feet up. They would be formed all kinds of blisters. But somebody in here who wears a size 16, if you do come up, I'd love to see your feet afterwards. But we think about a foot that big. If they were trying to put their feet in my size 11s, they they would experience challenge and difficulty. Because my feet were never designed to wear 16s and their feet were never designed to wear 11s. But what Jesus says, he says, my yoke is easy. My yoke is perfectly designed for you. What Jesus was saying was, I have a life and a way of living, a manner of navigating this planet that is perfectly suited for you and your purposes, the reason why you were created. Therefore, tether yourself to me and walk with me because it is easy. It is well-fitting for you. And so Jesus comes to all of us who are weary and who are heavy laden, and he says, come to me and receive the blessing of salvation. And come to me and walk with me that you might live the life that you were created to live. Now, this is what Jesus calls 
the people too in Matthew 11. But friends, it is also what he is calling us to today. Jesus is standing before us on the pages of Matthew 11 and he's saying to you, come to me and you will find rest for your soul. If you want to be reconciled to God, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to have a hope of eternity in heaven, it is found not through our behavior, it is found through Jesus' righteousness and his death on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven. So if we want the hope of salvation, if you want the hope of salvation, it is found by coming to Christ and trusting him. And this morning, if, as you're here today and you think, boy, my, my life is a mess and I don't know which way I'm supposed to go and I, I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life as it's going along, know that Jesus says, I've got the answer for you. Tether yourself to me. Allow me to set the direction and the pace of your life. Walk in obedience to me and you will find the life that you were designed to live. Jesus stands before us as he stood before them and he says, come and take. But here's the thing. How do we often respond to that message? How do we often respond? We often respond not by coming, but by turning and running. Jesus says that we are to live our lives this way and oftentimes we want to pull away from that in another direction. Jesus says, come to me for salvation, and oftentimes we want to clean ourselves up first through our religious behavior, assuming that God wants nothing to do with us if we're not somehow perfect or have a great spiritual resume. See, friends, we turn and we run. And why do we do that? We do that all too often because we forget the one who calls us. And so as Jesus gives this call to come and to take, he follows very quickly by reminding us who it is that is calling us. Reminding us who it is that is calling us. Now, when I, when I say that, I, I think of a particular quote that's, that's famous. You probably have heard this quote before. It's from uh, somebody named A.W. Tozer, but he said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, in what sense is Tozer's statement true? Well, it's true this way. The most important thing about us is ultimately how we respond to God. If, if I trust God and, and embrace what Christ has done for me, then what is true about me, what is most true about me is that I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. I've got the Holy Spirit residing within me. I'm a citizen of heaven. I've got this incredible future in front of me, right? That's what is most true about me if I respond to God and what he has done for me in Christ in faith. And if I reject what God has done for me in Christ, if I say I'm going to go my own way and I'm not going to trust in Christ, then I find myself separated from God and I'll spend an eternity paying for my sins myself. So how we respond to God is really the most important thing about us. But here's the important thing for us to remember, and this is where it connects to Tozer's quote. What we think about God instructs, informs, and often dictates how we actually respond to him. If I think that God is an ogre, 
I will not come to him in my moments of weakness. And if I know who God is really, then there is no place I would rather go, even in a moment of great difficulty. But the challenge that we we face in the midst of this, friends, is that really there are two options from which we can find our definition of who God is. If, If who we think God is is so important, how do we know who God is? Well, there's really two options that exist. One of those options is that we just imagine what we think God is like. In other words, it's up to you to determine who God is. And so we spend time in our thoughts and we just think, God, what are you really like? And then we imagine what God might be like. All too often, if we're honest, that's what we do. We think, God, you must be like this because that makes sense to me. And we just imagine the way that God is. That's one of the options. But the second option, and this is really important for us to see, The second option is that we don't just imagine what we think God is like, but we allow God to reveal to us who he really is. We meet God on his terms. God has revealed himself to us, and we go to that revelation to find out who God is, what he is really like. And when we find out what he's really like, if we allow that to instruct our view of God, it's going to be much more accurate. And it's going to be much better. Because, friends, the God who is is always, always, always greater than the God that you imagine. There's holes in your reasoning. There's holes in your logic. There are deficiencies in our understanding. God's better than all of that. And so it behooves us to to remember who God really is, to come to him and allow his revelation to define to us who he is. Dane Ortland, who wrote this book I referenced earlier, said this. He says, this is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. Isn't that great to think about? The God revealed in Scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. We need to allow the Scripture to reveal to us who God really is. And as we allow the Scriptures to reveal to us who God really is, we we actually can even zoom in a little closer. Because inside of the Scriptures, and specifically inside of the New Testament Scriptures, we have a lot of information about the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus reveals to us who God really is. Look at what we see in John chapter 1, verse 18. John says, Jesus has made God known. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Friends, if we want to know what God is like, and if knowing what God is like is so important because it instructs how we respond to him, and how we respond to God is the most important thing about us, then, friends, we need to look to Jesus to see who God is and what he is really like. And here's what's so beautiful as we look at Jesus as he has revealed God to us in the Scripture. He reveals himself to us as what? At his heart, gentle and lowly. Now, is that surprising to you? I mean, if you were to pick two things to say, God in his very heart is these things, would you pick the words gentle and lowly? Friends, there are limits to our imagination. 
But the God who is is so much greater than the God that we imagine. And the God who is says at his heart, he's gentle and lowly. Now, when we hear heart, we often think of emotion. But the heart really is the center of being. It's, it's the source from which other things flow. If we were to go to uh, Colorado outside of Leadville and we were to see this water bubbling out of the ground, we would say this is the headwaters of the Arkansas River. If it, you know, it, it, it instructs and flows so many other things down into the rest of the world as it flows forth. Jesus says, at his heart, the thing that springs forth so much of who he is, it is gentle and it is lowly. Again, Ortland helps us understand this a little bit. He says, yes, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, talking of Jesus, hopes and longings. He is the one whose holiness causes even his friends to fall down in fear, aware of their sinfulness. He is a mighty teacher, one whose authority outstripped even that of the religious PhDs of the day. To diminish any of these is to step outside of the vital historic orthodoxy. But then he continues. But the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way that the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Friends, as you read the Gospels, is that the picture of Jesus that you see? It is for me. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it over the last little bit. The picture of Jesus, who is gentle and who is lowly. The picture of Jesus, who is moving towards us and not away from us. The picture of Jesus that is not prickly, but is open-armed. We think of this word gentle, it's, it's used only four times in the New Testament in its particular form that it's used here. One of those locations is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, when Jesus gives a sermon on the mountain. He says uh, in the first beatitude that the meek will inherit the earth. That word meek is the same word gentle. Here in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, we, we've seen Jesus say that at his heart, he is gentle and lowly. In Matthew 21, verse 5, when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for his uh, presentation as king, and he's coming on a, on a donkey on that Palm Sunday, it says he came to them humble and mounted on a donkey. The word humble there, the same word that we have, gentle. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, speaking of uh, a wife, he says, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit. Friends, this is what Jesus says is at the heart of him. And if it's at the heart of him, it's at the heart of God. The heart of God is gentle. It's compassionate. It's warm. It's caring. This is who God is. Again, Ortland helps us see, says Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but it's open arms. Now, one of the things that we need to remember is that Jesus, in who he is and his definition, wasn't just words. 
He didn't just say, this is who I am, but he lived a life to show who he was. And so if at the heart of Jesus, he was gentle, then his gentleness, his gentleness of heart would show up in his life and in his ministry. So where did it show up? Well, we see it throughout the the scripture. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, a leper comes to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, leper, what are you doing? I can't be around you. i got to speak later. No, Jesus says he has compassion on him. He heals him. A paralytic is brought to Jesus in Matthew 9, 2. Jesus doesn't go, oh, another one? No, he says, bring him to me. He heals him. He has compassion on him. The crowds pressed around Jesus everywhere he went, bringing their, their needs before him. And Jesus did not send them away, but he had compassion on them. We see that in Matthew 9, 35 and 36, among other places. Matthew 14, 14, all of the sick are being brought to him. Can you imagine that? All the sick in our day, all the sick in his day in that area are being brought out to him. He didn't say, enough of this. But he moved towards them with compassion and with care. People came to him hungry. He didn't say, how's that my problem? You should have packed a lunch. No, Jesus fed them. He had compassion on them. Jesus sees the crowds of people around him in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. And he had compassion on them because they were being misled. He said, These, this group of people are being misled. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't say, what's the matter with them? What's the matter with this society? And wring his hands and post a blog post. He had compassion on them, friends. He had compassion on them. He cared for them. He taught them when they needed to be taught. He listened to them when they needed to be listened to. He prayed for them. He healed them. When confronted with a bereaved widow... He didn't, again, say, I'm too busy for this. Don't you know all of us are going to die one day? No, but he prayed and restored this son's life and gave him back to the mother. When he sees Jerusalem, he wept, not because he's weeping for the city. He's not weeping for the stones and for the temple. He's weeping for the people who reside there. This is the heart of God. It moves towards us because he is gentle at heart. And famously in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus was being criticized by others who said, Jesus, he's such a friend of who? Tax collectors and sinners. That wasn't a wrong description, friends. Their tone was snarky. Their statement was accurate. Jesus is a friend, tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because it's at his very core. In his heart, he is gentle. In his heart, he moves towards us. Now, this is not just something we see in these verses and these demonstrations in the gospel, but we think about even the macro arc of Jesus' life, how it connects to you and I today. We we think of verses like Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. 6 to 8, where he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
His gentleness is revealed in that he did not wait till we could impress him before he came. But he came when we were at our worst. Friends, this is the heart of the Savior today. Because of that, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2 lets us know he can deal gently with the ignorant and with the wayward. Anybody here ever feel ignorant or wayward? Ever wonder when you're feeling ignorant or wayward what the heart of Jesus is towards you, what his orientation is towards you? Guess what? We don't need to wonder. He's gentle towards us. We've seen that today. Now, I want us to remember who it is that calls us. Because how we respond to God is often influenced by what we think about God. And today we've been reminded that God is gentle at heart towards you. Therefore, as you sit there today, if you have walked in here today and you are carrying the burden of your own sin, and you have the thought, I have, I have done this, I've done that, I've done the other thing. If these group of people around me today were to know those things, they would run away from me, and God certainly would run away from me as well. I need to go and live a better life for some period of time before I would ever have a hope with God. If that's your thought, know that Jesus is standing in front of you today in Matthew chapter 11 and saying, come to me. I will be gentle towards you. Jesus died for our sins. And he, as a result, is gentle towards us that turn to him in faith. Friends, if you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, don't go another day. Today, right now, where you sit, come to Christ. Trust in him and find his gentleness, not just as a category, but as something that is bringing salvation to your soul. For others of you who are here today, you're weary and you're heavy laden. You came to Christ some time ago, but today you're living your life as though you need to impress God and you feel under the pile and you think, well, I have no other hope. Today, if that's you, friends, come to him. He is gentle towards you. And then for all of us as well, Take his yoke upon us and learn from him. Allow Jesus to set the direction and the pace of our lives. Why? Because he's gentle towards us. He he knows what is best for us. Don't run away from him. Turn to him and allow him to set the direction and the pace of your life. For some of us, we've spent far too long pulling against the strain of that yoke instead of walking in the direction that Christ is calling us to go. Rest in him, walk with him, and find his peace for your life. And as you do so, remember that of all the other things we might think of what it looks like for us to walk with him, walking with him will mean walking in gentleness as well, because he is walking that way. And so I I would just challenge all of the parents in the room. When you think about as a mom or a dad, impacting your your children's lives and and guiding them. Is there a gentleness in your parenting? If not, maybe you're not walking with Jesus in the midst of your parenting because he is gentle at heart 
walk with him in gentleness as well. Think about that as it relates to our workplace or our neighborhood and, and those that we're trying to impact with the good news of Christ, sharing our faith with others. If our evangelism knows no gentleness, then we're probably walking off on our own mission instead of walking tethered to the Savior who is gentle at heart. And in a thousand other areas of life, what does it look like for us to walk in gentleness as we walk with Him? Friends, we've seen today that as we need to remember who He is, we remember that He's gentle at heart. Next Sunday when we come back, we're going to talk not just about His gentleness, but we're going to talk about how He is lowly and what that means. Before we get there, I want to pray, and then I want us to remember what the Lord has done for us through the communion meal. Father God, thank you so much for just the the grace that you have extended to us, the love that you have shown us. And Lord, I thank you that that grace and that love was revealed in history. It was preserved on the pages of Scripture so that we don't have to just imagine what you're like, but we can find out that you truly are gentle at heart. May we remember that and respond by coming to you and taking your yoke upon us. Lord, I I pray now that as we conclude our service with a time of singing and, and sharing the Lord's Supper together, that we would allow the bread and the cup to serve their purpose of reminding us of the body and the blood of Christ that were broken and shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, may we see in those elements a reminder that we can come to you. And may we even remember as we walk forward today for communion that we can come to you even as we are weary and heavy laden and you will give us rest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.